What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this guest has had such an impact on my life he is the founder of the entire field of positive psychology and he's made an enormous change in the whole industry. And and he's on with his co-author of his latest book. Their book is called Tomorrow Mind, Thriving at Work with Resilience, Creativity, and Connection Now and in an Uncertain Future. So it's called Tomorrow Mind. And it's by Martin Seligman and Gabriella Rosen Kellerman. And I originally read Martin Seligman's book, uh, Learned Optimism, and then Authentic Happiness. And his whole point is that A, Psychology is always focused on what's wrong with you and how can we fix you? Whereas he wanted to say, let's say nothing's wrong with you, but you just want to be a happier, more productive, more creative person. And that's what he developed this entire field of positive psychology around, which I think this book really encapsulates all of his ideas and and all of Gabriella's ideas as well. So Gabriella then does the brain research to show why these ideas work. And they, in this book and in this podcast, we talk about how to basically be happier, how to find meaning in your life. What's the difference between meaning and do you matter to others? 
how to create more engagement in your life, how to achieve mastery in life. And more importantly, or most importantly, because it's a tool for all of these, what are the, we break down the components of creativity and how to be more creative. And it's just one of the more fascinating interviews I've done. Really happy to use the word about it. And, uh, and I had a lot of questions about optimism, actually, because sometimes when the world's a scary place, it's a little bit harder to be optimistic. And often, often I'm accused of being too optimistic. Like when I used to go a lot on CNBC, people would, of course, laugh at me for being too optimistic in, in during bad times. But, you know, I'm actually not as optimistic as it would often seem. I think sometimes, you know, the world is a scary place. And but we talk about what are the benefits of pessimism? What are the benefits of optimism? How you can become more optimistic and why it's rational to do so. And uh, anyway, I'm going on, but this guy has had an important effect on my life. And Gabriella's research on positive psychology is fascinating. So let's hear from the two of them. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. I just want to say, and Gabriella, I'm, I'm so happy you joined us as well. You and Martin Seligman, who's also here, wrote Tomorrow Mind, Thriving at Work with Resilience, Creativity, and Connection, Now and in an Uncertain Future. And just to summarize, I found your discussions of creating well-being and happiness in an ever-changing environment, what the components of that are, what the science of that is, plus your discussion of creativity, so fascinating that this is just a must-read book on positive psychology, self-development, whatever you want to call it. I also want to mention, Dr. Seligman, your books on learned optimism and authentic happiness were life-changing to me, like literally changed my life. So particularly, and maybe we can start with this, you both, you mentioned in the book happiness a couple of times, and you also mentioned well-being. And you've discussed this, Marty, in some of your other books. What are the, what's the difference between well-being and happiness? Well, for me, um, PERMA is the right acronym, P-E-R-M-A. So well-being has five different components. Uh, the first one is positive emotion, of which the subjective emotion of happiness is part. So that's P. The second component of well-being is engagement. That's when time stops for you, when you're completely at home when you're one with the music. The third component of well-being is good relationships, are. The fourth component is meaning and mattering, belonging to and serving something bigger than you are. And the final component of well-being is A, accomplishment and achievement. So for me, happiness is part of the P, part of the positive emotion, but there's a lot more to well-being than just how you feel. And, and you know, I have, a, I have questions about every component of PERMA, particularly how to improve it in yourself. And we were talking before the podcast and you mentioned how a psychologist who's using positive psychology, a field which you are the father of, the father of positive psychology, you could base, it, it basically all revolves around PERMA. How much PERMA 
uh, does one have? And then what interventions can take place to raise one's PERMA? And I think often I need my PERMA raise, which is probably why I read so many of your books and, and articles before. And um, Gabriella, I just want to explain, you you have a background, you're an MD, but you also have a background in all sorts of brain research and fMRI research. So you were able to actually see these components of well-being in action in the brain. Uh, yeah, that's correct. And and I've also spent a fair amount of time studying them in action in the workplace uh, and really understanding what it means to thrive at work. Like Marty, I began my career in the clinical realm and came to the conclusion quickly that the work of treating psychopathology was not necessarily or not in a straightforward manner going to translate into greater well-being for everyone else. Um, and that well-being needed to be the topic of its own study in its own right, which is really the, the subject of positive psychology. And so my career for the last 15 years has really been about how do you build well-being and thriving and health in high-functioning adults, in particular in the workplace. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to ask a, a naive question first, uh, which is, is it true that people kind of have a, a baseline of well-being and if something good happens to them, they're happy for a little while, but then they go back to their baseline. If something bad happens to them, they're sad for a little while and then they go back to their baseline, but that it's hard to move the baseline. So that's really two questions. Is it is that concept true of a baseline of happiness? And is it true that it mean reverts? That I can't raise my overall level of well-being. Let me try that one. Gabriello. So first, uh, James, I wanted to say I got I got into this in the same way that Gabriella did. Uh, so in clinical psychology, after working in that field for almost 30 years, I found we had reached a 60% barrier. And it was basically, and this is what I found after doing five editions of abnormal psychology, uh, I found there had been no You wrote my abnormal psychology textbook? You know, five, five, <laughs> five versions of it over 25 years. Oh, my and, gosh. And uh, every five years, I had to revise it to include the new drugs, the new uh, psychotherapies. And every year, every five years, I found that there was almost no progress. And basically, what had happened both for medications and psychotherapy, that pretty much no matter how you measured it, you got good effects about 60% of the time against a 40% placebo rate. And that's where things had stopped. So like Gabriella, I wondered, could we do better by switching to happiness and well-being from pathology? So indeed, James, this baseline that you talked about was very true of what goes wrong in life. There is a a baseline of depression, anxiety, and you can't push it around all that much. And so what Gabrielle and I have been after in many ways is if you look at the positive side of life, can you push that around more than the negative side of life? And that's why PERMA is a useful concept here. Because P, how much happiness you feel at any given time, really does have a baseline, and we tend to revert to it. So we get promoted, we get happy for a few weeks, and then we're back where we were. But the other four components, 
how engaged you are working with the people you love, how good your relationships are, how much meaning you have in life, and how much achievement you have in life are not baseline stuck. We can improve all those things in a permanent way. Well, and even the positive emotion, the the, the part of permanent that is most linked to happiness, you give exercises, which I want to talk about to improve, let's say, optimism or self-compassion or or things like that. So I, I really like a lot, you know, I just want to say to the listeners, this is not a discussion about self-help. Like th- there's like all this scientific work behind this, and there's all of these details about how to improve these things and what these things actually are. So I feel sometimes like words like happiness and here's how to improve happiness could be cliches, but you give like some excellent exercises, you back it up with science. And so I just kind of wanted to go through, I'm someone who suffers from low PERMA for whatever reason. I got two, let's say depressive parents, four depressive grandparents. And although I'm generally an optimistic person, it's always a battle. So I wanted to start with optimism. Like, and, and you give some exercises about how to improve optimism, but I'm going to just play devil's advocate and I'm getting right into it, I know. But what if things really are bad in your life? How do you be optimistic? Well, for, first, I want to distinguish between mood, which is how you feel, and cognition, which is what you think. Optimism is in general what you think about the future. So the question you're asking is, If you're in a bad situation, can you change how you think about the future? So the answer is yes, and you can change it. And roughly, this is how you go about it. The first thing you have to do is you have to recognize the most catastrophic things you're saying to yourself when a bad thing happens. So you're rejected by a girlfriend, for example. Uh, Okay, what are you saying to yourself? Well, you're saying things like, I'm unlovable. I'm never going to find love again. Okay, so part one, what's, what's the most catastrophic thing you're saying to yourself? Part two is to argue against it realistically. That is to find evidence that's, uh, Uh, make sense to you against your most catastrophic thought and treat the voice that's telling you you'll never find love again as an external voice whose mission in life was to make you miserable and Mm -hmm. argue against it. So what kind of arguments can you find? Well, I'm never going to find love again. Well, let's see, before that girlfriend, I had a satisfactory relationship that ended, but it went on for six months. Am I unlovable? No. Uh, There are lots of people who like me and admire me. And uh, maybe the way I should look at this breakup is we didn't get along. We didn't have good chemistry between us. And uh, what's the evidence for that? And then go over the evidence for that. So basically... You argue realistically, James, against the most catastrophic interpretation uh, that you're attracted to. And our most catastrophic interpretations are usually false. But let me, like, 
what if you have a strong, like, for instance, right now, we could be entering a recession around the country, maybe around the world. Lots of people are being laid off or fired from their jobs or unable to get jobs. And let's say they have a mortgage to pay, a family to feed, and so on. They're thinking of the worst possible outcomes. And one worst possible outcome is they will literally have $0 in the bank and be unable to feed their family and lose their home. What if that is realistic for them? How do they be, you know, how do they kind of lift themselves up from that? And that's not my situation at the moment. It has been, though, at times in the past. Two parts, James, to your question. And Gabriella may want to chime in on this, although we're not talking about the workplace at this point. We're talking about personal pessimism. The first part, James, is what is the cost of being a pessimist? And the second part, is the pessimism realistic? Is it justified? Let's do the first part first. Pessimists get depressed when bad events threaten at between two and eight times the rate of optimists. Hmm. Secondly, pessimists live on average six to eight years shorter than optimists. Third, uh, pessimists tend to fail more often at work because they don't try. And fourth, people like optimists more than pessimists. So the first thing I want to say to you, James, is the, the stance of pessimism is extremely costly. So that brings us to the second question. Is it accurate? Is there nothing you can do? Your bank account is zero at the moment. Well, what does that mean about the future? Uh, what can you do? Is it controllable? Can you turn to your network? Can you send out more resumes? Um, do you have friends you can borrow from and the like? So the point of uh, is it realistic is to look for all the evidence that you're making the most catastrophic, unrealistic interpretation. I'll add a couple a couple of thoughts, Marty, but um, obviously you're hearing from the world's expert on this, so keep that in mind. Um, I think that there's, for many of us, a uh, deeply held belief system, and like you, James, I come from a heritage of some of this, that we need to think pessimistically in order to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. That if we think about the worst case scenarios first or most frequently or most deeply, we will be able to plan our way out of a bad outcome. Um, understanding that belief system and challenging it is part of the work of what it means to build optimism. And it's part of what Marty was getting at with those exercises of sort of challenging the ideas that may feel realistic, but they're actually, again, attached to this sort of automatic planning system. For me personally, a big part of the work has been understanding the literature on those high costs of pessimism, deciding I want to live longer, I want to be healthier, I want to give myself that gift, and trying to separate out what's realistic planning from you know the, the uh, immediate catastrophization, which is so negative and so hard for us. And it is optimism is like like any other mental capacity we're building. It's kind of like a muscle. It is something that the more we repeat exercises to build optimism, to think of those best case scenarios, to imagine positive outcomes, knowing even that we will, in fact, experience catastrophic events in our lifetime. How will we make meaning out of it? 
how can we actually grow stronger in our relationships and our sense of self and our identity, all of those positive envisionings that helps build that muscle and also helps us counter some of those negative belief systems. And, you know, I've heard some people though, and again, I've sometimes been considered stupidly optimistic. So I hear that phrase about too much optimism. Is it possible to be too optimistic? We've um, asked this question empirically, James. So we measure different levels of optimism and we correlate it with things like well-being, achievement, and the like. And uh, we haven't found a downturn. Mm. Uh, and so the empirical data seem to be the more optimism, the better, at least as far as happiness, well-being, and achievement go. Probably because um, optimism leads you to try harder. The mechanism of optimism is to try. And it keeps you trying to achieve goals. And I think the important thing is when you find out a given goal is not achievable, is to have the optimism be flexible enough to give up that goal and pursue other goals. That may be what what you mean by too much optimism. I mean, I guess this is related to the phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. So this person who maybe is without job and is afraid, oh, six months from now, I'm going to lose my home and not feed my family. You're, sa- you're, you're basically saying if he's optimistic as opposed to pessimistic, what he's saying might be true at that moment, but if he's optimistic, he's going to be more likely to try things that could get himself out of the bad situation. And some of those things might work and, and so on. They're more likely to work than if he doesn't try anything. And so optimism is the means for resourcefulness. Pessimism is the means for giving up. Pessimism, though, and I know we're, we've been spending time on this. I'll, I'll move on, but it's so important to... Like I have, you know, two daughters who are maybe inherit anxiety as well. And I always tell one of my daughters, every time you wake up at three in the morning, worried about something, write it down and see how good your future prophecies, you know, are like, do they come true? And they never do come true, you know, but I guess with optimism though, it lights that fire under you. It's related to creativity too. Like you mentioned later in the section in creativity Mm -hmm. that, you know, you need optimism to be creative so that you could, so that you're curious, you could try new things. But pessimism is so addictive. It's easier to make sure everything's a catastrophe than to do the hard work of thinking, oh, there might be a chance. <laughs> we we also talk about prospection, which is a great uh, overarching concept for this per- part of the conversation. So prospection is generally how do we think about the future? And it involves both imagining, which is very creative, and planning. Um, prospection, it starts with a very optimistic phase. It's fast, it's divergent, and it's naturally optimistic. And then the second phase is more evaluative, deliberative, and often more pessimistic. So we all go through that cycle, a few seconds of fast, divergent, optimistic thinking, and then longer, a few minutes of evaluative planning, realistic, and some people pessimistic. And for some of us who get more prone to the pessimistic thinking, one of the exercises is how do you stay in that optimistic space first? Mm. How do you help yourself think more divergently? If you can't imagine it, if you can't imagine that positive outcome, it's going to be a lot harder to then do the work of planning to get there. 
if you're jumping right into the pessimistic evaluation, your options that you're going to be working toward and even imagining accomplishing are going to be more limited to begin with. It's like a smaller map of possibilities that you've given yourself versus the optimist. Just a comment, James, on your two daughters, my five daughters and two sons. Uh, you don't need to teach pessimism. You don't need to teach anxiety. It's part of our inherited brain. We're creatures of the Pleistocene. Our ancestors, Ice Age ancestors, facing the troubles of the Ice Age, if they were optimistic and they said, oh, it's a beautiful day today, I'll bet it'll be beautiful tomorrow, they got crushed by the ice. Famine, ice, drought. The pessimistic mindset, the anxious mindset, was selected for by evolution. Those are the ancestors that survived. So we have a brain that is naturally pessimistic and naturally anxious. And that's why optimism has to be taught, particularly in an age which is no longer the Ice Age. You know, and I guess, you know, you mentioned kind of almost evolutionary psychology that, you know, some aspects of us are simply because we're we're primates. So primates are hierarchical animals, and we always find ourselves, you know, ranking ourselves, you know, from alpha to omega or whatever the last Greek letter is. And and it's not just a habit; it's it's part of our brain. And you know, given that, do, do you sort of identify what what? Am I in a hierarchy? Where, where do I think I place lower in a hierarchy? Should I diversify hierarchies, if that makes any sense? Like, are these tools that are, are used for, for creating more optimism or well-being? We're both naturally pessimistic and naturally hierarchical. And what we find out about hierarchy is that we do social comparison all the time. And what we find is the more you do social comparison, the less well-being you have. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important to evaluate where you are against where you used to be and where you might be going. Very important to have a growth mindset and not to have a continual social comparison mindset. Well, so I'll, I'll skip to the the M part of PERMA for a second because it's it's related to this meaning and mattering, and there's, I want to ask about the difference between those. But mattering is often in today's world judged by oh, how many Twitter followers do you have? Oh, you guys just wrote a book. Did it make it to the bestseller list? Like these are kind of these external metrics for determining your personal mattering to the world, how much you matter. Oh, well, of course I matter. I'm on the bestseller list or I have a million Twitter followers or whatever it is. And that's part addiction, but part built in. And, and society is overwhelming in society now. You can't escape it. So how do you guys personally deal with that? Or how do you advise other people to deal with that? Like what is mattering versus what I just described? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to speak to that. So I'll start with meaning and then help get to mattering and why we've settled on that term. Meaning is uh, fairly used colloquially to imply a very wide range of things. 
Um, it's it's very common to want to talk about meaning at work, and that's part of how we came to be interested in the topic. Uh, a growing sense that our work should be a huge source of meaning for us. As I evaluate one job versus the other, I want to find more meaningful work. It turns out to be a less useful construct, especially in the workplace, than mattering because it is so inherently personal and interior, whereas mattering is something that others can help us with. And so when we talk about mattering at work, it's a lot more actionable and concrete, and you can think about it as kind of a subset of meaning that others can actually impact. You're right, there is a sort of a toxic and addictive loop that can come around one half of mattering, which is recognition. So uh, Rebecca Goldstein, who is one of our collaborators on this work and the MacArthur genius, she talks about mattering having two components, achievement and recognition. In the workplace, recognition often should come from our manager, our supervisor, can also come from colleagues, from leaders of the organization, whereas achievement is something more that we develop internally. And so it's true that the external recognition of being on a New York Times bestseller list would certainly help someone with their sense of mattering, but they should also be able to arrive at that through a deep appreciation for their own achievement. And that's something we can cultivate ourselves. It's something our managers, our teachers, our family members can also help us cultivate by noticing the high quality of our work, by noticing the amount of intention and thought that goes into what we're doing. Um, the There are many ways to feel like we matter and to help others feel like they matter that are small, that are achievable, um, that will also help us feel more whole and more connected. And that can contrast to meaning where it's much harder to say, did it, uh, was it meaningful that we wrote this book together? Was it meaningful that I turned in that project on Friday versus did it matter? Well, I think it mattered because it helped people. I think it mattered because it led to XYZ business outcomes, uh, et cetera. Anything you would add there, Marty? Mattering is the question of what would happen if I vanished? What would happen to my family? What would happen to my coworkers? What would happen to the projects that I've been involved with? And that's a very different question from the question of, of meaning. And I think it's very important in the workplace to recognize that other people crave being mattering. And so it's very important to, uh, as managers, uh, as teachers, to go out of our way to make the people we work with feel that they matter. So mattering is much more actionable than meaning. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend 
who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there and it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You refer in your sections on rapport, a lot of that is about making people feel that they've been listened to, that they matter, and so on. But if an individual is questioning there's two ways an individual might question if they matter, which which in turn affects their PERMA. One is if they really don't matter, which could happen. And the other is, is as they get older, I would imagine the need to matter should be less of a requirement to be have a fulfilled life. But maybe I'm wrong on that. Well, I, I mean, can Arthur share- Brooks has done done some writing on this that you the way you matter must shift as you reach certain ages? I can share that we find more universally uh, older employees have a stronger sense of meaningful work across different domains, um, across different socioeconomic brackets. Uh, There does seem to be a way that we become more inherently attuned to our own purpose and to the, uh, the sense in which the daily activities add up to something that we look back on and feel proud of. Um, it's it's a potentially one of the reasons that it's helpful to be mentored by an older uh, employee at work. And, and so, but let, let's take the work environment. Again, if somebody, um, let's say someone is, is basically phased out of their job. So technology comes along to, to replace them. And this has happened all throughout history, but it's happening more and more. And eventually they're laid off 
inspired. They don't know what to do. I mean, you have an example in even the, the first chapter of the book. Uh, uh, and then they they don't matter as much as they did before. Let's put it that way. So potentially with optimism, they could be hopeful of of mattering more again. But let's say their kids now have graduated. Like, let's throw on, let's f- throw some more, you know, fire on this. Their kids have graduated and hardly, uh, you know, they're not as communicative as before. Maybe they're divorced and they're not having as many relationships. Uh, I don't know, on and on. Could it be the case that part of the challenge is getting comfortable with not mattering? Well, I think Arthur Brooks is a good lesson here, James. So uh, Arthur's argument is that as we age, and in many ways, the old jobs we used to do are phased out, what do we have as we age? So Arthur argues, I think correctly, that when we're young, we have a lot of athletic intelligence, fluid intelligence, cleverness. And a lot of our jobs uh, revolve around being clever and fast. And as we age, our fluid intelligence goes down and our crystallized intelligence, which is knowledge, experience, and wisdom, goes up. So what it means to matter as we age, the way Arthur Brooks looks at it, and I agree, is to use our knowledge, experience, and wisdom more. And so, for instance, in my life, Gabriella, I think, is still at an age of high fluid intelligence. In my life, mentoring matters a great deal more. Passing on my experience to others, as opposed to cleverly solving the problems I used to be able to solve. And let's say someone listening to this hears that and they say to themselves, boy, I'd love to stop going after 6 billion social media followers and and move on to mentoring. Not that those are different from each other, but how would they begin that that process? What if they're not confident in their ability to to mentor? You 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 started an entire field of science. So, okay, you could mentor. <laughs> what about someone else? I can I can speak to one of the fundamental ideas around how do we take on a new task that seems daunting. Um, And one of the greatest predictors of whether we'll be successful is self-efficacy. We also talk about it in the book as one of the uh, essential five essential drivers of resilience. And self-efficacy, you can think about it as self-confidence, but importantly, it's built by seeing yourself succeed uh, over and over again. And in order to do that, you want to have goals that are chunked and that are small and manageable so you can witness your own successes. So if you're starting off learning how to be a mentor, don't go sign yourself up to be a mentor to 10 people. Maybe start with a conversation with a young cousin who you know you'll be comfortable with and see how it feels and see if you find you have that wisdom to offer. Um, don't jump in all at once. As you build that greater confidence, you develop slowly a sense of mastery. And what's wonderful is it translates. So it won't only give you confidence in becoming a mentor, for example, it will give you confidence in trying other new things you haven't had before. Um, it's it's just generally one of the greatest predictors of our well-being and, and our success in life. You know, and this is a really great point, is that mastery in, in, in the way you describe it in the book is not about, okay, now I 
I'm a golf player at zero par. Like I'm pro professional level. Mastery is about kind of, if I may summarize it, celebrating small achievements along the way or, or, or figuring out how to chunk the process so that there are, so that there are small achievements along the way. Like, oh, I played golf today. That's an achievement. Let's celebrate that. It, be, and, and I guess the reason is, and you were sort of referring to this earlier, pessimism is more built in. So when someone has a bad experience, they kind of rank it five times more loudly in their brain than a positive experience. So, you know, is that a method of overcoming that? Like kind of chunking the, the process of achievement into smaller achievements? One way of putting what you're saying about mastery, James, is the ability to argue against the most catastrophic things you're saying to yourself. The ability to uh, find what has gone well in your life and to use it more. And so one exercise we do, which is relevant to uh, uh, several basic points that James has made, is um, called putting it in perspective. And so we have people who are at a difficult situation first. So, uh, for example, let's say you get a, uh, it's uh, Friday afternoon, or in the afternoon, you get a note from your boss saying, uh, come see me at 4.30. Okay, what are you saying to yourself? Well, we're attracted to the most catastrophic interpretation. Oh my God, it's the end of the week. I'm going to be fired. He's asked me to come in to fire me. Okay, so we ask people, what's the most catastrophic interpretation? Then we say, okay, what's the reverse? What's the best possibility? Well, maybe he's going to give me a raise and he's asked me to come in to hear about the new opportunity and the raise I'm getting. Okay, what's the most realistic scenario and how can you plan for it? Well, the most realistic scenario is probably there's some element of my work that he's just come across that he's not very satisfied with, uh, and he's going to tell me about it. And so I'm going to have to listen about that, and I'm going to have to improve in that aspect of my work. So crucial to this process is to recognize that we're enormously attracted to the catastrophic. We're built that way. How do we counter that? Well, to think about the best interpretation and then to focus on the most realistic, the most likely interpretation and plan for it. What? Well, why does thinking about the best interpretation first help when looking at the most, when trying to decide what to do about the most realistic situation? Um, it's because we, the catastrophic brain lanks out the most positive aspects. That comes last. So we have to get people thinking about the positive things that might occur in order to calibrate the most realistic ones. Like, let's say in the workplace, um, and I'm sure, like, Gabriella, like in your work with, with different corporations, you might have encountered this, maybe the realistic thing is they're going to be fired. And they kind of, you know, if somebody is going in at 4 3 on a Friday, it's like a 90% statistical chance they're going to get fired. Is there something good about thinking of the most optimistic situation so that and and really imagining it and feeling it as possible 
So then when they go in for the realistic thing of getting fired, at least they can say, you, you can't fire me. I did this, 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 at least I need a bigger severance pay or something like it gives them, you know, invention from their necessity. Okay. So I think there's two possible scenarios there, but the idea that 90% of a boss's 430 meetings are is him or her firing someone. I'm not sure that's accurate. I would no, no, guess. No, I'm, I'm saying maybe just in this case, it might be accurate. Okay. So in that other scenario where it, it actually is accurate, 99% of the time that you're going into a 430 meeting and you actually will be unfortunately terminated, uh, there should be some other signs that that's coming up. And so you should actually be uh, preparing for that in different ways and not sort of be caught off guard. Very occasionally you're caught off guard. And then that's almost a different conversation that's really about resilience. And that's also a, a great one to have. Um, when you're going into that office and you think there's a chance, it's maybe you're weighing it as more likely than it should, but you have to allow for the possibility that, you know, there've been maybe a couple signals along the way. There are rumors of layoffs coming, whatever it might be. It's still helpful to have all of those possibilities on the table to keep yourself in a cognitively agile space. So one of the things that can happen if you decide you're getting fired on that Friday afternoon, and people really do this, they start, you know, calling loved ones, I'm about to lose my job, um, you know, doing all the things that maybe it makes sense to do in the moment about where, where you're preparing to lose your job. And physiologically, you're now experiencing experiencing the world as if you've already gone through this trauma. You're in this sort of amygdala hijacking space. It's very hard to access the, the sort of higher order cognitive functions. And you're going to want access to those if you're talking to your boss about potentially losing your job. Like there's a lot of important things you're going to want to say and do in that moment. And to be able to go in it and be in the psychologically most flexible, strongest position is only going to serve you well. That's great because this is really, it, it, it kind of segues into other parts of PERMA, which is engagement, the E in, in PERMA, which is that as you engage socially, cognitively, whatever with others, that improves your overall, you know, whether it's well-being, happiness, resilience, all of these things. And so, so this is an example of that. And so, so I wanted to ask you about engagement. What if you have limited number of people you can call. And again, I know I keep presenting worst case scenarios, but that's because at some time or other, we've all had worst case scenarios and all of these things. What if, again, let's say you just got divorced, your, your kids are busy doing their things, you're ashamed that you might be about to get fired, so you don't want to call your friends. And, and I know shame is like a different issue related to all of this, but uh, you know, you're afraid simply to, to to talk to others. How can you overcome that and maybe still get feelings of engagement or community or whatever? This is my private therapy session right now. <laughs> I'm just recording. Yeah, it. I think, I mean, I'm really glad you're you're asking it. Um, there is a loneliness epidemic. It's very real, uh, and I would say even more than that. There's people. What happens when you reach out to someone and you feel like they let you down? Like they actually didn't show up for you. You know. I think it, it's important to distinguish a few different purposes of reaching out to someone in that moment. So some of it is just about feeling human closeness. 
And that doesn't necessarily need to involve making yourself vulnerable, talking about the full extent of what's happening. Um, If someone does not have close confidants that they can open up to that way, at least one hopes that they have acquaintances they could spend some time with, have that feeling of human comfort next to you. That alone is really worth something, even if you're not able to fully unburden yourself. We talk a lot in the book about the ways that it's difficult to connect with people today, uniquely so, um, especially at work, but but in general. Yeah, because the whole of, remote work thing, the pandemic, everybody, you know, kind of got a lifestyle of lockdown. Totally. And we are trying to build brand new relationships over Zoom. We're doing so in teams that are reconstituting every four to six months on brand new projects with people in different functions and different continents who speak different languages. Uh, It's a very unnatural way to try to connect with each other. Um, Fortunately, we do have a tremendous amount of science about connection, about what helps us get there quickly. We also have a pretty good understanding of the ways that we process each other that can get in the way of that connection. And so at least drawing awareness to that, to some of those barriers um, is part of how we can begin to overcome them. I want to point to this uh, recurrent theme in James's question. So James has recurrently given us the worst case scenarios, the catastrophes in which there's no way out. And he's asking, what can you do about that? And let me respond to that, James, since it's been the main theme. Uh, If you're a catastrophizer, if you're a pessimist, that means you don't try. Uh, It means uh, you're at a dead end. And so it's very important if you find yourself recurrently uh, thinking about the most catastrophic interpretations of what's going on in your life to find the things that are going well, to argue against the catastrophe. Your bank account is zero. Yeah, well, do you have friends you can talk to? What's going well in your life? What counters it? So I think what I'm saying, James, is we can always generate the things that are going badly in our lives. And the point of optimism is that it gets you trying new things. It gets you out of a dead end. Well, and and you know, and, and it's very interesting how all of these things interconnect in terms of creativity, which is like this tool of, you know, finding out, you know, figuring out new things to do and then and then doing them. So all these things like optimism and engagement and mastery, all of these things are related to creativity, which is often a solution to the the worst case scenario. So I, I wanted to focus a little more on engagement for a second. You have a, a section about building a rapid rapport with people, which I think is a valuable section. And and there's tools in there I I that I think are valuable. But maybe just describe, you know. You describe individuation, synchronicity. Like, what are some of these tools for rapid rapport? Like, let's say I really need engagement, but I need it rapidly. (laughs) Um, Great. So uh, we talk about three barriers, and, and I'll sort of align them to the tools that we talk about. So one is this barrier of time. We don't have enough time. We're always trying to 
talk faster, multitask. Um, there's two tools that help us overcome the fact that we feel like we don't have enough time to connect with people. The first is understanding that actually when we do connect with people, it alters our perception of time. So we're always walking around feeling starved for time, which is called a time famine. But when we give time to others, when we do volunteer work, when we just simply give a friend an ear, it actually switches us from a feeling of time famine into time abundance. So we're worried going into it. Well, I don't know if I have time to sit down and hear what's on that person's mind. If you do, and if you genuinely connect with them and come from a place of uh, generosity, generativity, you will experience time abundance uh, as if time elongated. So this is really fascinating because, and I and I re- read that in in the book, and I was thinking it's almost contrary to what one would expect because that takes more time, and you're already in a time famine. But so this concept that uh, that, and you tested various things like you know not wasting time versus giving time to others, and and so on, and you found that this was by far the number one. So giving time back to people in some way, either like you in the examples you just gave, is is very valuable in a building rapport, but B getting rid of your own sense of, I don't have enough time. I just think that's really just a fascinating concept. It's a, it's a brilliant study. It was not ours, I will say, but it's a brilliant study. It's called giving time gives you time, um, by a group of professors from Wharton, Yale and Harvard. Um, beautiful study. Why does that work? Is Does giving time, and like you said, it, you qualified it with, you know, giving it in a sincere way. Does that put you into this high dopamine kind of engaged flow state, you know, that that the guy you've worked with? Cheek sent me high. Yeah. Uh, is, is is that related to, to the flow state at all or, or a mini way of getting there? I'm, I think we talk a bit about it in the... Uh the first of the two rapid report chapters around this idea of positivity resonance. So there's a feeling of connection that we experience bodily, right, throughout ourselves. Um, There's lots of positive uh, hormones, neurotransmitters that result uh, in in that state. May not be flow quite, I don't know what you think, Marty, about the relationship between positivity resonance and flow, but it's definitely an altered way of being. And it takes us out of that executive control network, which is really where time famine sits. It's kind of the ticking clock in the back of our brains. And we suddenly don't hear that anymore. And we're much more focused on this oxytocin, uh, on on the embodied experience of love. It's a creative connection that James has made between the flow state and time abundance. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. What other points do we feel this like sense of loss of time? Like, for instance, when you're in a, you know, in the other part of PERMA, when you're a, a going through achievement, often you lose sense of time. When, you, when you're achieving something in an area that, that you love, or when you're doing something that you feel has high degree of significance or meaning, and we kind of skipped over meaning. We talked about mattering, but what's the role of of meaning in this? And and again, I, I know a lot of young people think about this, but also older people. How does one find meaning in life if you feel to this point your life's been meaningless? Well, I believe that a sense of meaning comes from attaching to your attaching yourself to something much larger than you are, to uh, belong to and to serve something bigger than the self. 
and that's a source of meaning. Uh, it's all over the world. There are all sorts of uh, good endeavors that are bigger than the self that we can attach ourselves to, that we can belong to and uh, serve. There, there are also a few kind of common, most common categories of how people find meaning and uh, reading books about it or even talking to a coach about it can help you then go through and identify which of those categories most resonates. We talk about meaningful work, some of the categories that are most common. People find meaning through experiences that let them grow, either personally or professionally. Uh, other people find meaning through acts of service to others. It could be customers, it could be colleagues. Other people find meaning through somehow giving back to the earth, giving back to society as a whole. Um, so there are these these ways of actually sort of going through and seeing what resonates. Another coaching approach is to lean into values. And so it's a, a slightly different take, but what are the values that drive me most? Is it about service could be a value, it could be about loyalty, um, it could be about authenticity. And so when people are really stuck, you can actually prompt them with these sort of lists that generate, and it, it may be a variation on an item in the list that resonates, but at least start to generate and, and help them reconnect with something deeper. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. You mentioned this idea of, of chunking things down smaller when you were talking about mastery and achievement. I wonder if the same thing, you sort of imply just now the same thing could happen with, with meaning. Like, okay, I might not write a book that changes the entire planet, or I might not be you know, ruler of the world or solve cancer or whatever, but if I live a life that's honest and, and sincere and generous, then even in ways I don't realize I create meaning in the world. So that's kind of like a chunking meaning down into like a mini meaning. I think that's backwards, James. Mm -hmm. That uh, all of the ways that you phrased that were about the self. And what I'm saying about meaning is that it's larger than the self. It consists in subsuming the self into a larger endeavor that's bigger than the self, that it's, it's the self-serving something bigger than I. That's what meaning is about. 
And then to your to your point, James, I think that there are ways of experiencing that connection to something larger that might seem small, right? As small as picking up a piece of trash on the ground and putting it in the garbage can, um, connecting you to that larger purpose, even through very small actions. So do you think there's a, a religious or sp- spiritual component to meaning? Uh, religion uh, is one of the larger things you can attach yourself to. But there's politics, environmentalism, all sorts of philosophical causes uh, that one can attach oneself to. So religion is a, a common way of, of being part of something bigger than the self. But there are plenty of other ways. You know, and, and I like the way you guys in the book, how you bring it into the workplace. Like you basically say people could have a job, they could have a career, or they could have a calling. And so a job might be like, Marty, maybe your job is like you're a professor. And so you have to teach people tomorrow in a class. A career might be, well, you're a professor of positive psychology and you're going to build up and you're going to have more papers and you're going to get tenure and, you know, you're going to get more known for your work. But a calling might be you want to bring the field of positive psychology into the world because you think this is important for society. And you know, I think I think we're maybe in a depression of callings as people skip around from job to job. You know, the nature of work, the workplace has changed, and I wonder if you see that, or or maybe you see more people than ever now have a calling that they. And if you don't, if one doesn't have a calling, again, how does one find that? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's a great question. Is it harder to have a calling in what we call the whitewater world of work, where there's so much turbulence? I think it's uh, it's still very possible. And if you're moving from job to job, it could all be firms that, for example, are related to sustain- sustainability or uh, fighting climate change. There's plenty of causes and jobs around that general area. Um, I do think it's a really important challenge, though. And, and the way I see it come up most is actually back on the topic of mattering. So it's very frequent that we might be working on something for as much as a year, 18 months, all of a sudden, the corporation or the organization pivots hard away from that, and we have to stop that work entirely. Suddenly, it feels like this thing we've been working on every day for 18 months of our life is no longer meaningful. How do we make sense of the previous 18 months? And so I think that's part of where this crisis of mattering is coming from. And if you think about it, the person who should help us make sense of that is probably the person delivering the message that we're pivoting away from it and explaining why. It's mm. usually our manager. Uh, and there's not like managers are getting trained in how to help people feel that they matter even when they're walking away from 18 months of work or six months or six weeks or whatever it is. We want to feel like our jobs are real uh, and that they're not, uh, to quote another important book in the space, bullshit jobs, which are demoralizing and create anxiety and depression. Um, and it is really important to be able to make sense of these chapters as we walk away from them. So some of the strategies that are helpful, first and foremost, how did we grow during those 18 months to recognize that ourselves, to have our manager recognize that those stay with us permanently, even if the individual project doesn't. Secondly, how did parts of that project contribute more broadly to the fabric of the organization and possibly even to the realization that what we're doing is not going to serve the organization well in the long term. That's part of a successful failure is what you're learning in the process. 
And then third, there's optimism to be had and to be shed about how those parts of the project could come back around to help the world, to help the organization, help the customer in the future. And very often they do get recycled. Um, there's no, there's a, a very authentic and true reason to be optimistic about that possibility. Here's my comment on calling, James, that uh, uh, a job is something we do for money. And when the money stops, we stop doing it. Uh, a career is something we do for promotions. And when promotions stop, we top out. But a calling is something that we do for its own sake, regardless of whether or not we're getting paid or we're getting promoted. So it's very important to ask yourselves, what are the things that we do for their, our own sake that we're good at? And how can we incorporate those into our work? You know, it, it strikes me that, ha, you know, the the meaning, the phrase having a calling could be a tool to increase optimism. So for instance, I read a, a, a book many years ago about a guy who, he wasn't an executive at a big company, lost his job, got divorced, and was was broke and ended up working at a Starbucks. And so he wrote a book, My Year Working at Starbucks, and how it changed his life. It made him like a a fulfilled, happier person, you know, serving people at a Starbucks. And it was a great experience for him. And so indirectly, he had a job, it didn't work out. He had a career that didn't work out. But because of these things, and because it forced him to work at Starbucks, he found a calling that did work out, which was to describe, you know, this secret he found about his own self-fulfillment. His calling was essentially sharing that. And it seems like when everything's lost, behind you, you could knit all of these disparate things together to perhaps find a calling, even in a worst case scenario. If I may say, Gabriella and I have a calling, the same calling, in fact, and it's roughly to try to increase the amount of well-being in the world. This is something both of us would continue to do, whether or not anyone paid us to do it, and whether or not we got promoted for doing it. So uh, for both of us, and in many ways, the reason we wrote this book together is that we're after increasing the tonnage of well-being on the planet, particularly at work. And, you know, all of these things, whether it's a calling or, or doing things that matter at work or uh, tools to, to find optimism, a lot of this revolves around your ability to be creative. And you guys recognize that. And in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about and breaking down the components of creativity, which I found to be fascinating. Like I've I've written about creativity. I've read a lot about creativity, but you bring up a lot of unique things. First off, your definition of creativity, I thought was unique. It has to be original. It has to be surprising. So those two parts, you, many people could stop there. But then you said it has to be useful or desirable to an audience. And that I found fascinating. It's not creative, as you point out an example, it's not creative if your son wants to pave your driveway with salami because that's not useful to anybody. It's kind of imaginative. And I think many people confuse that with, with creative, but the useful is an important component. And then you talk about the different types of creativity which got a little bit more technical, but maybe you could describe those different types, you know, integration and 
and, and so on, the four different types you had? Sure. For 60 years, people have said creativity is divergent thinking. And I think that's true, but useless. Uh, what are the different kinds of divergent thinking that work, that are creative in science and creative in business? And um, we think there are four of them. The first one is being an integrator, seeing that things that look different are really the same. And uh, this in, in science, uh, I'll let Gabriella give a uh, corporate example, but in science, that's what Newton was great at. So, uh, James, what, what we learned in school about Newton and the apple is actually true. When he was 21 years old, he was back at the farm during the plague, and uh, uh, the moon was rising behind an apple tree. And at one point, an apple occluded the moon. And Newton thought, could it be this, the very same thing that draws the apple to the earth keeps the moon in orbit? The R-squared law. And uh, that was uh, the ability to see uh, that there was unity to things that looked very different. So that's one kind of creativity, and it's a kind we see at work as well. Would integration also include, let's say, an example like like the arc of the hero in storytelling? So many stories have a very similar arc. Or like Star Wars, you can map it to, let's say, the arc of Jesus in the Bible. Uh, is that an example of integration? Yeah, I think so. I think that that uh, identification of archetypes is a great model of of what integration is about and looks like. And um, we talk it in industry as another example of um, just to sort of concretize what does it mean at work. So if you think about forty years ago, uh, you would have a a phone hanging on your wall, um, a boombox uh, on <laughs> an embarrassingly large boombox on the bookshelf and uh, framed photos with, uh, you know, a, a chunky camera. Now we have all of those in one device. The idea, the ability to recognize that phones, boomboxes, and uh, cameras are all capturing and transmitting data, and then the technology to put that all in, in one device. Both of those are uh, very complex acts of integration that happened over several generations of innovation and, and produced our smartphones. Okay, and then the next category of creativity had was splitting. Yeah, and that's seeing the things that look like they're the same need to be split into different things. So the table of the elements in science is splitting earth, air, fire, and water into, at the moment, 119 different elements. And again, the act of creativity in the workplace is often splitting. So the assembly line was a matter of splitting, um, making an automobile as a whole into different parts. So in the workplace as well, creativity can be about splitting, and some people are better splitters than others. And, and you know, I guess your acronym PERMA to describe well-being is, is an example of splitting. Like someone could just say, oh, I'm happy today, but you could break it down Well. What is it? Are you, are you finding more meaning today? Or did you engage with loved ones today? Did you, so you could, you're splitting well-being creatively. You thought at some point, well, how can we identify the components of, of well-being? And so 
you, you then they created this book and and other other creative works you've done. It's a great example. Yeah, you know, I'm just uh, I'm just wondering, James, which of which of the four kinds of creativity you are. Mm-hmm. So in the first 45 minutes, what I heard was uh, integration, and that is seeing that all these different things were really bound up in the worst possible scenario. So you were integrating, but when you talk about Permime now seeing uh, you as a splitter, the the third kind of creativity, which is uh, what I mostly relied on, is figure ground reversal. And that's, you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking in the foreground when the answer is really in the background. And so, for example, James, the most important discovery in neuroscience in my lifetime came from the question of asking what part of the brain lights up when you're listening to a lecture or doing an external task. So there are literally a thousand studies in which we put people in the fMRI machine and we have them listen to a lecture or do mental arithmetic. Uh, But we always had to run a control group. And the control group we asked, well, just lie there and don't do anything. Well, astonishingly, it turns out that the brain is very messy when it's doing an external task. You have to be a really good statistician to find out what part of the brain is active. But when I ask you, James, to just lie there and don't do anything, the brain does the same thing over and over. And it turns out it's exactly what we do when I ask you to plan for the future. So it turns out the default circuit of the brain is thinking about the future. And that was discovered because it was in the control group and not in the experimental group. We were asking the foreground question when the answer was in the background. It's interesting. Is that related to your discussion of improvisers where you you studied people who were doing jazz improvisation um, who were counting backwards, which is a hard task, as opposed to a cognitively easier task of counting forwards and then a control group that just improvised? And you found that anything that produced load on the front of the brain prevent you know hurt improvisation improvisation needs some energy from from your conscious brain it's not as subconscious as as people thought do you think that's connected the default circuit is our creative circuit the daydreaming circuit in which we break the bounds of time and space and juxtapose things that are not occurring in the same place in the same time creativity resides in the background, not the foreground. It's, it's interesting because there are foreground activities, though, to increase creativity. Like you mentioned, for instance, being curious, which you know, also along with that is being social, so you can ask people questions. And so there's like active things you can do to create creativity. Is that just sort of giving fuel to the background that, that processes it in its creative ways? Or what's... Yeah. You know, how can we, and I also want to talk about the fourth category, distal creativity. Maybe you could describe what that is first, but then I want to, how to, how to cultivate more creativity. Yeah, the fourth kind of creativity, distality, is this strange ability that some people have to 
think differently about time, about space, and about culture. So it's the ability to imagine time differently, which is what Einstein was so good at. Uh, uh, Tesla was great at spatial imagining. And there are other people who are very good at imagining different cultures and different kinds of people. So the fourth kind of creativity that's been documented is distality. So is that like, uh, let's say, a science fiction writer? Are they exhibiting distality? Very much so, yeah. And then what would you say are the best ways? If someone says to themselves, oh, I don't really feel so creative, what are the best methods you you would say for upping their creativity? Yeah. So going back to your your point about improvisation and and the relationship between conscious and non-conscious aspects of creativity, um, we've taken a cue from the way that researchers think about the same thing with sleep. So if you think about sleep, it's not something you could command yourself to do, just like you can't command yourself to suddenly be more creative. There's a relationship between our cognitive behavior or our conscious behaviors and our non-conscious activities that facilitate sleep. In creativity, there's three networks that operate to help us with creativity. The first, we just talked about the default mode of the daydreaming network, uh, not a highly conscious network. And there, part of what we can do, as you said, is fertilize the ground. So that's a place where connections are made. We're drawing on references the deeper and richer that network of references can be, the more we're positioning ourselves for novel combinations um, and surprising ideas. And so reading broadly, uh, meeting interesting new people, changing up our routine, seeking novelty really is how we help fertilize that default mode network. The second um, most important network in creativity is the executive control network, which is really where we're focused and working on a problem. Uh, That is important for creativity. It's also important that we give ourselves time off from that network to have this daydreaming, what's called incubation time. One of the interesting things is that the lab that studied this best um, is John Schoolers in uh, Santa Barbara. And they have found that when you are uh, incubating, so when you're sort of mind wandering and and working on these creative problems, you actually want to engage the executive control network just a little bit. So you don't want to be doing nothing, just sort of sitting on your bed. You don't want to be doing too much, like working on a math problem or sending emails. Uh, You want to be doing just enough. So it might be going for a walk. It might be gardening. Um, It might be simple, very simple math problems like in the improvisation task with the jazz, the sort of counting problem versus the complex problem. Um, Just little enough is the key. And one of the things that is sometimes recommended for creativity, which is mindfulness or more intense meditation, is actually not conducive to that incubatory period. So that's one of the things we point out as well. Um, One other area that's really ripe for fine-tuning and building creativity is in ambiguity tolerance. So when we are in the more divergent, uh, more frightening for some people, early phases of a creative project, we want to sort of quickly get to the answer and our executive control network can kind of uh, short out the creative process because there's this emotional need to get through the ambiguity to make a decision about what we're going to do. 
getting more comfortable with ambiguity is part of what we can train ourselves to do and help facilitate a more productive relationship between those two networks. How do you how do you train yourself for um, being able to handle ambiguity? So there's a few different components to it. Um, some of it, you know, is simply sitting in the time. So we need to uh, let ourselves feel the emotions we're going to feel in ambiguity, witness ourselves feeling that and see that we're okay. Nothing bad happened from sitting in the ambiguity. Not too dissimilar from what you would do with someone with a, a compulsion because it's almost compulsive to get out of ambiguity where you help them flood and sit in the discomfort and witness themselves succeeding in doing that. There's emotional regulation, so awareness of the anxiety usually that's coming up, the fear, what are you fearful of, testing that, pressure testing it, reappraising those emotions. Um, and then there's also the recognition of those small wins and that building up of the sense of mastery. So don't try to increase your ambiguity tolerance all at once. Try to increase, for example, a, a product discovery sprint by one day at a time. Don't try to do it by an extra adding an extra week every time you're in product discovery. Um, make it reasonable, and then watch the build, the wins built. It's interesting because the the first two things you say, which is the 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 background daydreaming system, and then the executive control function, are very much, um, you know, leading towards the solution. And you say mindfulness and meditation. Uh, are not as helpful as people might have thought. But the third thing, the amb ambiguity toleration, what you just described is exactly meditation. So it seems like when you're not kind of having a specific problem you need to be creative or solve, it is useful to kind of do these more meditative aspects like being aware of your anxiety or being aware of, of you know, your thoughts about the problem and, and you know, whether they're, you're tolerating ambiguity or not. So it's good. So in general, you're saying, practice that, but then that's just to handle those. That That's so you can later on when you do need to focus, it's ready. Right. So anxiety is going to be a hugely detrimental, too much anxiety is going to be hugely detrimental to creativity. And meditation and mindfulness can be extremely powerful ways to manage the anxiety. All things being equal, if all you're trying to do is dial in that daydreaming time, uh, the mindfulness, just like the anxiety, requires so much of your conscious attention, it's going to interfere. So that's sort of removal of a barrier versus facilitating the creative work itself. So it's so fascinating, uh, this, you know, the components of creativity. So let me ask you guys this, like a personal question. A lot of times I feel, I've talked to a lot of self-help writers, for instance, and I feel that people often write a self-help book because this is what they needed. So they became an expert at that area of self-improvement. And then they were able to document their story of achieving some level of mastery in this, in this area. What do you think your respective baselines of happiness are? And is exploring positive psychology was your uh, attempt to improve those, those baselines? Well, for me, you've hit the nail on the head. So I started life out a kind of miserable, depressive, pessimistic person. And uh, the whole course of my career has been to ask the question, how do we get out of those things? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've been part of measuring and creating uh, interventions to take us out of depression and into 
well-being. And I'm a measurer. I take my own medicine, and I measure all these things across uh, the course of my life. And uh, wonderfully in my life, my field changed, psychology changed from being about misery and suffering and conflict to being about well-being, happiness, good relationships. I was privileged to have a, a role, sometimes a leadership role in that. And the remarkable thing was that I took my own medicine and I'm a much happier person than I was. Is it, is it hard to take your own medicine? Because a lot of it requires discipline. Uh, it takes discipline and it takes creativity. And uh, the voices are still there telling me, oh, Marty, you're a failure. You didn't get any place. But I know how to argue against them now. That's good. And you, Gabriella? It's also been a personal journey for me. And I, I agree there's a biographical element for most of us who end up in, in the behavioral sciences. Um, I've always been interested in people, just fascinated and love to talk to people and understand what makes them tick. But around adolescence, uh, I the the change in emotional state for myself and for my friends around me was really startling. Uh, I had some friends who went through an extremely tough time, including a very close friend with a suicide attempt. Um, and I suddenly became awakened to the fact that there is, despite the fact I lived in a, a really lovely, loving middle-class community that uh, valued children and raising children and education, still so much emotional suffering. Um, also around me, science, great scientific discoveries being made, the standard of living being raised generation after generation. And yet there was not movement in this core emotional facet of how we experience all of those things. Uh, it really troubled me. It still troubles me, honestly. And, you know, to Marty's point, that's really where the fire and the urgency came from for me and this calling that we share. Well, uh, again, I want to thank you guys for coming on the podcast and I mean, this this book is definitely a game changer. Like, it's such a valuable book and has so many insights into well being, happiness, both in the workplace and outside the workplace, and creativity and and connection with people. The book's called Tomorrow Mind by Martin Seligman and Gabriella Rosen Kellerman. And again, I've been a fan of other works. Marty, your your learned optimism was like a Bible to me and I, I really appreciate it. And it's such a, an honor to have you guys on the show. So thank you so much. And, and I'm sure this book's going to be a success. Thank you so much, James. Oh, thanks for having us, James. And thanks for all your challenging questions. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? 
also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 